here's what tonight's going to be. <clears throat> oh, man, I'm nervous. Uh, this is either going to be a really cool night or this is going to be just a total train wreck. Uh, we are doing a, uh, we're doing a panel here, Q&A. Do we have a slide with a phone number on it? Yes, Jeffrey. Give it up for Jeffrey. I love you. I love you. Hey, everyone give Jeffrey a hug when you see him later, okay? He loves that. Um, so, uh, so, man, text this phone number at any point tonight. It's going to show up on this, which is called an iPad mini, uh, and uh, we're going to try to answer any questions. We've been in a series uh, we've been in a series called Barriers, and what we've been trying to do in this series is uh, tackle, tackle barriers to faith. So whether those are intellectual barriers of maybe somebody who hasn't come to faith, maybe you're in this room and you're like, man, I'm not ready to drink the Kool-Aid because I've got legitimate intellectual problems with what Christianity uh, proposes. Uh, so maybe there's intellectual barriers, maybe it's emotional barriers, and, and it's the thing of, man, I... I'm not ready to follow Christ yet because what kind of a God would do this? Or, or just some ways that maybe you've been hurt or you've seen hurt and, and those kind of things. Or you know other people who are in that boat. Maybe you're following Christ, but you know people, you work with people. Maybe you invited somebody tonight uh, who, who's in that boat. Or even just a volitional barrier is something we talk about of sometimes we don't follow God because we just don't want to, right? Because I don't want to give my life following Jesus. I want to be king. I don't want to follow a king. I want to be king. I want to be God. I don't want to submit to him. And so, and so those become these really real barriers in our life. So we've kind of been tackling some of those. So tonight, man, the floor is open for you guys. Uh, I want to introduce who's up here on stage, uh, although I took some notes and then I put them down here. Um, on stage here, we have Samuel Parrish right here. This guy, give it up for him. <laughs> Samuel has, uh, has been, has, did 10 years, has been doing... 10 years of working in recovery ministry. Um, he has been married to, for four years to your wife, Jacqueline. Is that right? Um, he grew up in Memphis. He has been in Fort Worth for eight years. He is the man, okay? And you will see that tonight. By the end of tonight, you will be like, man, that guy rocks. He's the man. And um, yeah, so you just watch. Just make note of that and then be amazed by the end of the night. No pressure, bro. No pressure. <clears throat> Next up on this panel, we have Susan Hines. Give it up for Susan Hines. <laughs> Susan Hines works here at Christ Chapel. She is, uh, her title is the queen. What, what is your title here? It's supposed to be communications director. But it's not. It's really just like the queen of the church. Queen of the church. Queen of the church. <laughs> uh, technically communications director, whatever that means. Uh, but really, she's just the queen of the church. Uh, Susan is um, a, a friend um, but she's an incredible woman that God has done some really cool stuff with. And the way that she even lives out her faith now in some kind of crazy and uh, radical way, she's uh, essentially fake foster. Is that a thing? She's basically fake fostered uh, three, three girls age one, two, and four. Um, she's been discipling a, a woman from the Stop 6 area. Is that right? Uh, the Stop 6 area. And so has essentially kind of come in as a, as a mother to, those, to the daughters of, of that woman. And uh, cool, a cool person. She's got a 22-year-old daughter. Rain, is she in school still right now? Graduates in 39 days. You think she graduates. You think she graduates in 39 days. She might not, though. She does Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'd prove it. I don't know. We'll see. Um, okay, lastly, guys, Ryan McCarthy. I don't have any notes written down for Ryan McCarthy because he is Ryan McCarthy, and he is a man that needs no notes. Uh, 
he, he has been on staff uh, from the beginning, not really, but he's been on staff here for 21 years, uh, which is crazy. He has had 19 different, how many jobs have you had here? How many different roles, probably? Six, seven, eight? Like within the city ministry. Yeah, just that alone, you had like all of them. Oh, okay, four. Hey, way to go, man. For a period. There you go. Nice. Wait, that's a. I heard Rain is about to switch majors too and keep a couple more years. Yeah. Um, uh, Ryan, Ryan actually, there was a period of time um, where Ryan was, got to be my boss. I got to work for him, and it was an awesome season that God used a ton of my life. Ryan is actually the guy who uh, I credit to teaching me how to preach. I've been influenced by a lot of different people, but Ryan was the guy who really took the time to sit down and teach me the discipline of what it looks like to preach. So if you think my preaching sucks, his email is <laughs> ryanm at christchapelbc.org. So you can complain to him. I don't want to hear it, guys. It's just who I am. Uh, so anyway, Ryan is, Ryan's the man. Right now, currently, his role is in soul care. What do you, how would you describe what you do? That's awesome. How to make people change. How to make people How change. To make people change. <laughs> wow. As the communications director, yeah. You should know. Okay, so we're jumping in. Um, oh, wait, no. Before we jump in with questions, I want to spend some time. I want to carve out some time here, and I want you guys uh, to hear their stories. Uh, I want you to hear their stories, uh, at least a five or so minute version of their story. So we're going to take some time to do that for a couple of reasons. One, because I think as you listen to their story, um, I, I think you're going to be prompted with some questions that maybe you have, and so we want you to be able to utilize that time to send in those questions, but um, also uh, because I think they're God-glorifying, because I think they're God-glorifying, and I think it's going to be a challenging thing just even to hear that. So, Ryan, you mind kicking us off? Actually, let me pray, and then I'm going to have you kick it off. <clears throat> Father, we love you. Uh, we love you because you first loved us. Uh, we're so grateful for what this night is, and I'm so thankful to be up here with uh, these three people, and Lord, I just pray you would speak through them. Uh, I know you are speaking through their life. I see it. I see their good works. I see um, the faith they have and how it's being lived out, and so, Lord, I just praise you for it, and I, we want tonight to, to be so glorifying to you. We want people to walk away and not think about us or this panel or, you know, how different tonight was. We want people to walk away thinking how beautiful is Jesus, how worth following is Jesus, and so uh, would you allow us to... Uh, to point to you as we answer any questions thrown at us, Lord. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Ryan, give us, give us your story. Um, I grew up in Kansas City. I've been on staff for 21 years, and I'm 44 years old. So I, I started doing math when I say I came tonight and said CCU in 1992. I, someone shared the gospel with me when I was 16, and my answer was no way. Remarried, and the, the woman he, he married was a very um, just 
non-Christian, kind of anti-Christian, two big pregnancies here, uh, Texans and Christians. And I... And where'd you go to college? I went to Texas Christian. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. As an atheist, so that's a TCU. So, uh, I... They, they promised they'd never get divorced. I remember seven years old, I remember them telling me that, and this is foreshadowing. Nine years later, they got divorced. My mom, who was very strict, she was engaging uh, up and down. She was like, you know, a flawed human being, but she loved me. Uh, but it was one of those things where all of a sudden, she was also very strict. I knew she was, right? Um, and I couldn't, like, go out late at night with my friends who had later curfews, all this stuff. Well, all of a sudden, at age 16, I'm given a set of keys, car keys, and I've got freedom, you know, showing up. And my parents announced to me that they're, they're seeing a marriage counselor, and they don't think my marriage is going to make it. And it was within a month, they divorced. And my mom moved to Norway, of, of all things, married a guy named Steiner Onwit, which is proof that I'm not making this up. <laughs> Steiner, what? Steiner Omri. I'm writing that down. That's my next, my next son's name is going to be Steiner. <laughs> <laughs> By, by pigeon. I got a scholarship off and I came down to visit it and I was like, man, the girls outnumbered the guys like seven to one. Playboy rated them the third best looking school in the country. And I was like, I like my odds at this school. And I didn't help them at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And a guy named Chris, trumpet player in the marching band, was walking with me, and we found out he's a Christian. I started debating with him, and he was not threatened. He was very casual in our conversation. He didn't seem like he was against me, but he just said, you know, it was just it was a conversation where he would say things like, well, that's a good point. I'm, I don't know what to say about that, but have you thought about this? Or I'll look into that. He was just engaging me. And I remember thinking to myself, literally, oh, I guess not all Christians are stupid. 
And, and then by the time we got to Clark Dorm, we're standing at the steps that have probably been reconstructed since. But um, we were standing at the steps and he said, um, hey man, I gotta go to bed, but let me ask you a question. Is it possible you could be wrong about your atheism? And I was like, sure, it's possible. And he said, well, all right, if God is real, if Jesus were the son of God, hypothetically, if that were true, would you wanna know it? I said, yeah, I guess so. And he goes, well, why don't you go up to your room and say one prayer and ask God to reveal himself to you? And if you're wrong, I mean, if he's not there, then you just talk to the ceiling. And I remember he won enough respect in, in that one conversation. I went up to my, to my room, looked at, remember looking at the ceiling tiles and genuinely praying. Nothing happened. But two months later, I had a bad mushroom trip, okay? Um, I went up to KU to visit my friends, and I hadn't done a whole lot of shrooms, but I, I knew I liked them before. Yeah, for those um, homeschool kids, so a mushroom trip, is that like, <laughs> is, is, a, is a mushroom trip like you go to a field and like visit? You visit, yeah. You visit a mushroom factory? You, you, well, it's when you're walking and you trip over a mushroom. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> this is hilarious. Go ahead. You, right. did, you did illegal drugs, right? I Ryan. did, yeah, illegal hallucinogens. Okay. Just make um, sure we don't want to lose anybody in here. So I've did. shared with an older audience, and I saw a bunch of these old people like, what's a mushroom trip? I want to go uh, there. <laughs> okay. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's great. Um, so, okay, I'll try to give the short version here. I thought I was ripped off because an hour and a half passed and nothing happened. I'm sitting there, and all my friends are you know, having a good time. I'm sitting here. I'm just, this stinks. I, and then I noticed that my knees tasted funny. <laughs> I'm like, that's weird. And then <laughs> the, the taste spread, though, quickly to my whole lower body. And I'm like, oh, I'm tripping. And, and the, but the thing is, it tasted like blood. I'm like, ugh. Yeah, the image that went through my head, I remember, you know, in the, like the, you go to uh, Six Flags, and they put the little thing on the roller coaster, it goes, you know, and you're in, and you're not getting out. That's kind of how it felt. It's like, this is in me, and I'm... I'm in for this ride, whether I like it or not. And so the panic kind of set in immediately because like, this isn't good. This all happened quickly, okay? So I felt my soul getting pulled down. Like, and the, the, the image that it comes to my mind is if you took a sock and dropped rocks in it, the, the sock would stretch and sag. It's like my soul were the rocks, but my body or physical life was my, the sock. I felt my soul getting pulled and stretched downward. I didn't believe in a soul. But I'm, it's almost out of body. And, and um, my thoughts were going really crazy. I started thinking about things I didn't want to think about. <clears throat> I began imagining um, if, there, uh, if there was probably 30 minutes had passed. And I'm sitting here just trying not to absolutely panic. I thought to myself, if there's a gun here, I'd shoot my friends and then I'd shoot myself. Which was not my thought. I mean, I was almost like so evil that I, I recognized I, I didn't think that, did I? I don't know if you've ever stood at the edge of a cliff and you, you're not, you wouldn't say you're suicidal, but you're like, what if I just jumped? And then it kind of freaks you out that like, oh, maybe my impulse would take over and I would do it. And so you kind of want to back away. I, I felt like that was in me. It was like, I would do it. I would shoot my friends. And then yet I had no animosity toward them, but I wanted to kill myself because of fear and everything. But I also realized if I did it, I knew where I was going. It'd be like cutting that sock and I knew I was going to hell. Mm. I knew it with the clarity that um, is strange because the book of Romans talks about it very clearly in Romans one and, and two. I knew these things, and I would say simultaneously. It's like I understood that I was going to hell. I understand it was absolutely deserved. 
There was no questioning that, whether it was right or wrong. And Romans 3.19 says every mouth will be shut in the judgment. That there was no defense. <clears throat> I knew that the reason I was going to hell, too, was I knew that I was never an atheist. I knew at that moment with crystal clarity I never didn't believe in God. I always believed in him. I just hated him. And that's Romans 1. God has revealed himself, Romans 1, 19 or 18 and on. God's revealed himself, but men rejected him. They wanted to do their own things. They suppressed the truth by their wickedness, and God gave them over. And, and that's exactly, I knew that I had rejected him and that I basically, you don't fight God and win. So you just say, hey, you don't exist. Let me do my own thing. So I knew with crystal clarity I hated God the whole time. And then I also knew I don't want to go there. Like, I'm, I'm, I've chosen this, but I'm now I'm still alive. I'm not choosing this. And I'm, I'm also 30 minutes into a mushroom trip that's supposed to last like six hours. I think I can't last another five minutes with this in me. And I just thought to myself, literally, God, would you please save me? I thought it. I didn't pray it. I thought, God, please save me. And immediately he sobered me. Like, like that last song that we just sang, Jesus first time I've heard it, so I don't know the lyrics, but he was but Jesus in the darkness. I mean, he like, he, oh, darkness shakes. I was thinking, that's, that's my story. You nailed it's those like, lyrics, bro. Yeah. <laughs> like a poet. Yeah. All right. Um, it's like turning on the lights in a dark room. The darkness doesn't fight against it. Mm -hmm. it, it, it he, he showed up and immediately, there was no battle. He showed up and they were gone. And when I think of like Jesus calming the storm, the storm stopped and the seas were stilled. He, the demons were gone and I was sobered. It, to me, it's a biological, physiological mm -hmm. uh, miracle what yeah. happened. And I just sat there dumbfounded. Uh, I was just saved and I knew it was Jesus. I don't know how to describe that part. I don't think I could have articulated the gospel yet, but that's how God made his debut in my life. It's incredible. Um, and then... I'll stop there. Praise God, man. Like 18 minutes or That's something. That's awesome. No, it's good. Um, <clears throat> watch this transition from a mistake I made. Susan is the communications director, right? Well, we put together, we've been doing these videos each week, and uh, to intro tonight, we put together a video. So, Susan, because you're the communications director and you care a lot about videos and what we put on social media, we wanted you to see this video of one of our favorite people, Todd, and his testimony. So we're going to throw this up here. Um, and this kind of, honestly, he's just a fourth story. And this is a short version of a fourth guy who's not on the panel, but he's a part of our ministry and we love him. We love what God has done in his life. So uh, watch Todd. Hi, my name is Todd Lacey. And for me, Christianity was a emotional crutch. It was an opiate for the masses as the saying went. Uh, there was a season of my life where I looked at Christianity, I looked at the faith, I looked at people that worship Jesus Christ, and I saw them as individuals who needed some sort of fairy tale narrative to alleviate um, some sort of suffering that was going on with them, whether it be uh, social suffering, financial suffering, emotional suffering, psychological suffering, some sort of crutch to um, yeah, alleviate that pain, alleviate that suffering. In a way, I almost pitied them because my understanding was that I had the truth uh, and that they were the ones under the illusion that needed to be um, corrected. After a series of circumstances, um, I found myself in the hospital uh, and I received a Bible. And it was there that I opened up and read the gospel for myself and realized that the narrative that I had 
created for myself, this ideology I had created for myself that I was so confident in and thought was an accurate portrayal of absolute reality was actually me in a state of, of being dead in my sin. Um, it was in a hospital that I gave my life to Christ, and since then it's becoming more and more clear to me that Christ uh, is actually far more than a crutch for me. He's actually my lifeline. Um, you know, Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. So. That's, that's how I view my relationship with Christ. Looking back, it, it still blows my mind that even when I was most hostile toward God and most uh, and, and, and reviled Him, that He loved me in that and had a plan to save me even when my heart was, that, was turned against Him in that way. Praise God. So now it feels like we have four people on this panel now. Yeah. So honestly, I love Todd's story because I feel like it really does connect a lot with yours, like where you were at. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. There's something I left off about the character of the God who saved me. Yeah. And I just want to, um, is that, yeah, he, I look back and what amazes me is when I asked him to save me or just thought it, he rescued me as quick as I'd rescue my own son if you were drowning. Hmm. It, it, he didn't like, oh, look crawl your way back a little bit. He, You're going to have to earn it. Yeah, he revealed himself as sovereign and, is, and powerful, obviously, but also personal, loving, merciful, kind, just a, the God of grace. Yeah, uh, that's cool. Thanks for so, adding that. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Susan, sister, tell us tell us five-minute version of, of your story. I know, it's, I know you got more than that, but... Ryan did not teach me how to preach, but just now he taught me how to hold the microphone. Oh, good. You're learning. <laughs> Thank you. Good. Ryan. Thank well, you. way to go. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, so um, I was born um, to a Catholic mom, and so she raised us to be really good Catholics, the kind that only go on Christmas and Easter. She always said that way we didn't bother the priest too much. So, <laughs> um, nice. so we did that when I was about 10. My parents got a divorce, and um, my dad had previously been dating a lady who became my stepmom. That's why they got a divorce. Um, so when they, I guess I was about 12, they started attending a Nazarene church. And they got saved one Sunday. And I had no idea what that meant. But I did know that they were back at the house after church that day, smashing um, all the liquor bottles that were in the house, which were billions, and um, they were throwing albums into a giant garbage can and burning them. And it was the weirdest, scariest experience I'd ever had, and I knew I did not want to be saved. Um, <laughs> whatever that was, I wanted no part of it. I was hiding under my bed with my brother. Um, we continued to go to church every single time the doors were open. Um, my dad cut the yard. Um, my stepmom was in there cleaning. Um, and one of the weird little turns she took was, um, you can't do drugs when you go to church, is what she thought. So, well, not the illegal kind. But you could switch to prescription drugs. So she did that. Um, and continued her drug habit just in a more popular way. Uh, I don't know. It was weird. Um, so she also became super abusive. Um, my dad would have to look away in order to not see what was going on. She beat the crap out of us pretty much every day. Um, and 
at one point, my dad and I had to just agree that he was not going to stick up for us. Mm -hmm. So um, in all of that time, I'm getting closer and closer to our pastor, and he's trying to explain to me that what I saw on the day that my parents got saved was not really what it was all about. And um, he led me to Christ when I was about 12, going on 13. Um, I finally understood what he was talking about one Sunday and went down and, and prayed um, for Jesus to come into my life. And then I got back up and went on back to life. And I was 12 or 13. I don't know that it meant a ton to me at that point. Um, I did get baptized in the Nazarene church, which really made my mom mad because she told me I'd already been baptized when I was a baby. And my dad was, of course, thrilled. Um, my dad led us through morning daily devotionals. We led the normal Christian life other than the fact that we were all hiding that my stepmom was a drug addict. Um, so as we kind of progress through life, I'm in junior high. Uh, hanging out with the wrong kids, like everybody does in junior high. And I got raped one Friday night. Friends' parents were out of town. We were staying at their house. Um, my best friend actually held the door um, while I was being raped. So that led to a life of just kind of hitting bottom, um, as much as you can hit bottom as a 13 or 14-year-old. And started trying to find new ways to dull the pain that was going on at home and what had just happened. And didn't really tell anybody about it. I mean, my friends all knew because they were at the house. Um, but I didn't tell my parents. And went to college to Texas State, or what you guys call Texas State now. Had a fantastic time there. Um, worked at the Green Parrot, which was the popular bar in town. Uh-huh. <laughs> Get a regular. Um, that, that is how I paid for my school, bartending and cocktailing there. And had an absolute blast with a bunch of other people who were um, filling themselves with everything that was never going to offer, offer much hope or much life. Uh, we continued that way with my friends. The sad part is my college friends, I can't even tell you what any of their last names were because we really were drinking that much. So my mom would tell you that I majored in Scheinerbach. I would tell you I majored in having a great time. <laughs> um, so much so that I got anemia while I was there. Mm -hmm. And it was an anemia that I'd never, I guess I'd never heard of anemia at that point. But they wouldn't let me go home because if I'd skinned my knee, I would have bled to death. So it turns out that you cannot only drink beer and eat peppermints. So you should stop by Taco Bell. That was your diet, peppermints and peppermints beer. Peppermints and beer. I lived off of that for about three and a half years. So don't tell Rain if you know her. Yeah, no, of course don't not. Don't tell Rain. She's going to be college for another few years, so <laughs> right, she, right. she won't hear No, her. she's not. 39 days. <laughs> um, okay, so I get back home. Um, I'm adulting at this point, which was magical because I never really thought that I would ever make it that long. I really always thought I would die at the age of 22 for some reason. That was my magic number. Um, but I made it. I got pregnant, got married, kind of did that out of order, but didn't know that. Um, in the Nazarene church, you do not talk about sex. No one has it. Not even the married people. Um, <laughs> And the Catholic Church, that all, sucks. I know. 
And the, and the they're, Catholic, they're missing out. <laughs> and the Catholic Church, they just said, don't use contraceptives. That was really important, evidently, in the 90s. So, um, so I got pregnant, got married, and in the tradition of my family, got a divorce. Um, later on, um, got remarried and started uh, looking for a church home because I was practicing Catholicism. And I rewrote that a hundred times today, practicing Catholicism. And I figured it's because none of us could do it very well. I don't know why we practice <laughs> Catholicism. We but um, I was practicing Catholicism and my husband was Baptist. And so we had to find a church that we could agree on. And I was working in a printing company one day and one of our clients came in and were telling me about their church and it happened to be the executive pastor and his wife of a little church in West Fort Worth called Christ Chapel. And I know, weird, right? <laughs> I sat right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we started coming to church here and am I way over my five minutes? Okay. I'm so sorry. I uh, started coming to church here. We started a series that Rick Warren was doing, A Purpose Driven Life. Started going to a small group for the first time, so my mom thought I was in a cult. And we, I talked to my small group leader's wife one night, and she explained grace. And I broke down crying, mm. and Daniel was like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I got in the car, and I went home, and... I accepted Christ that night, and mm. I don't think I told anyone because I didn't want my mom to think I was in a cult again. So <laughs> um, I ended up getting baptized right here. No way. Right there um, at the end of that series, and I started going to church here a lot, and then I started going here more and volunteering more, and then they put me on staff. And now you're the queen. And now I'm the queen of the church. <laughs> and so isn't it cool how God uses you? Yes. <laughs> Love that. Thank you, Susan. Thanks. Samuel, tell us, tell us your story. Okay. Um, hopefully I don't get in trouble for some of these words. Um, Hang on. Any, anything going to offend? Is there any words that are going to offend anyone here? Okay. So we're okay. good on words? Like, okay. he can say penis. Okay. <laughs> he can say masturbation. We're okay with that? We're adults? Okay, good. I'm Take it away. I'm saying that one. Okay, um, good. Okay, so... So I grew up the son of a music minister in a small church in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I have a mom and three younger sisters and grew up around a ton of women. Um, but my earliest memories of church are very confusing ones because I sat under an amazing pastor who got up every Sunday and preached the word. And the Jesus that I heard from the Bible was captivating and life-changing. But the Jesus that I saw in the lives of the people that my dad was on staff with and in lay ministry in the church was a very different picture. I remember being a four or five-year-old boy in a deacon's meeting where the deacons had decided that they were not going to let the African-American kids that were the majority population of our neighborhood in the church use the church gym because they didn't want those people in our church. And, and it was in Memphis. This was in Memphis. Memphis. This was in Memphis, yeah. And um, the neighborhood, that, that was our family. That was our community. And um, the next Sunday, my dad, the music minister, the pastor, the chairman of the deacons, somebody else, one of the other staff members, all resigned in protest because they said they weren't going to try and lead a church that was that stuck in their sin. And so um, I knew that the church was not, very young age, I knew the church was not a safe place to be different. And it definitely wasn't, um, you didn't have to do what they said. 
what was said from the pulpit was not necessarily how you lived out your life, and that there may be multiple ways of looking at this Jesus character, not just the one that came from the pulpit. And so um, my parents uh, were the kind of parents that liked to give us good things, and so they bought, I don't know if you all remember this, this is a younger crowd than I'm used to, um, but uh, Apple came out with a series of Mac uh, Apple computers that looked like Starburst. That was like their first personal mm-hmm. computers. They were multicolored. They had the M&M shaped mouse and it was really fun. My parents bought one of those. It had four whole gig of hard drive <laughs> space. And um, they brought it into our home not knowing things about history or cookies or filters or anything like that. And words that I started hearing at my middle school lunch table that didn't have satisfactory definitions in the dictionary I started looking for answers to. Um, my parents were really kind of stoic, wonderful but stoic people, and so I didn't want to ask them kind of embarrassing things. And so, no joke, the very first thing I ever put into a, gr- a Google search engine was masturbation videos, enter. <laughs> I had been told in school that if you wanted an answer to something, Google had it and videos were faster than text. And so, what I discovered that afternoon at 10 years old in the privacy of my home was one, Um, sexuality was exhilarating, and two, I'm not like everyone else. I had already known that growing up around a bunch of women. I didn't like sports. I didn't own a pair of tennis shoes until I was 21 years old. Um, And so when I looked at the world of men and the experience that I was having, we lived in two different worlds completely. And suddenly that day I had a name for me. At 10 years old, what the internet was telling me and what my feelings were screaming at me was, you're probably gay. Like, that's, that's probably who you are. Um, like I said, I didn't know about cookies at that age either, and so my parents found everything that I did that day and confronted me with it and were like, what are you doing? And I was like, it's pop-ups. I don't know what the, I didn't do this. Um, and they ignored the fact that that was a blatant lie and just let me go along for the next several years looking at porn every afternoon that was becoming increasingly homosexual in nature. Um, until one afternoon, I came home from school and my dad had a manila folder, like, that tall. Um, He had contacted the internet company, and he had printed off every website I'd been to over the last several years, pushed it across the table from me, and said, explain this. And I tried to lie again. I was like, I don't know, somebody hacked our Wi-Fi, whatever. Um, And he told me, you need to figure out what's going on in your life, because my marriage is falling apart, and if you don't figure this out, we're going to figure it out for you. And my mom came home and told me that she had been raped when she was a girl, when she was a little girl, that people that I knew well had sexually abused her over the course of her life, and that somehow now that was my fault because my life wasn't put together and her life was falling apart. And my parents, I genuinely believe in that moment, and I know this sounds crazy to say, were doing the best they could with the tools that they had, but they had very, very bad tools. And so they tried to love me with the tools that they had, and in doing so, I did figure it out, and I didn't talk to them for the next four years. High school was a very isolated experience for me, Um, In the midst of that, I found another website that wasn't porn, which was weird because porn was all I was doing. And it was a group of people who felt the same way that I felt, but were getting really good Bible-focused answers. And I didn't want to be a part of that because I liked being gay. Like, I I liked being weird, being different, being outside. I went to a high school of 4,000 kids, and I was one of, like, three people who were gay at the time. And so um, it was a different experience. And... On this site, I discovered people who were getting good answers for how they felt, that maybe the Jesus that I had heard from the pulpit really was the Jesus who existed, but I blew past that really fast and didn't think about it again for a long time, and somehow in the midst of this, decided to go to a private Baptist school and get a biblical studies degree. So (laughs) I I know this feels a little disjointed, and there's nothing but Jesus who did this, but I went to this school, 
and for the first time in my life met real Christians. And what I mean by that is I grew up with three sisters, mom, grandmothers, didn't do sports, so had never lived with guys before. These guys were the most disgusting, vile, <laughs> horrible, smelly group of men, I, group of people, frankly, that I had ever been around. <laughs> but they woke up every single day and put their flesh to death by the power of the Spirit, and it was the most compelling thing I had ever seen. They would lie to me and feel bad about it. They would look at someone with lust in their heart, as they put it, and actually feel remorse. And I had no context for what they were doing, and it terrified me. And so I tried to push them away. I came out to them as quickly as I could. I started wearing even weirder clothes than what I was wearing to try and scare them off. And they sat across from me and said, we have no idea how to help you, but we know the gospel's big enough for you too. And we don't know how the gospel is going to answer your question, but that it will. And we will be with you as long as it takes to figure that out. And then two weeks later, an EF4 tornado destroys my school. And the tuition that was already barely affordable went through the roof. Um, I knew that I wouldn't be able to afford $40,000 a year in student loans. And so I started looking for other schools that would take my degree. One of those was in Kentucky. One of those was in Fort Worth, Texas. And as I was doing some looking around, I discovered that the owners of that website that I had been on those years past um, were 15 minutes from Fort Worth and had a small group that I could go to and get some more answers for what I was feeling. So I moved to Fort Worth very, very quickly, didn't really even get to say goodbye to my friends at school, um, moved down here, started school, and was gonna, like, let's try and make this straight thing work. I didn't really wanna be straight, but I wanted, I wanted to hear the best possible answer from Christians so that I could say no to it and move on. Um, I was smart enough to know that I was gonna deal with this for the rest of my life if I didn't finally put it away, um, and I just, I wanted the Jesus thing to be done. And so when I went to this organization, I went there expecting a how to be straight list. And what they gave me instead was the clearest version of the gospel I have ever heard in my life. It does not matter how you feel. Straight people go to hell every single day. What matters is who you are. And if you belong to Jesus, then he gets to tell you who you are. If you belong to you, you get to decide who you are. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, he names you his son, and anything else that you feel in response to that, you have to figure out how that works because this isn't moving. And the gospel will change you, but they never said it was going to make me straight. And it crystallized in a way that Christianity was not me changing how I felt, following a set of rules, going to a church that made sense. It was submitting my life to the one who made me and going along for the ride. And at the time, that's the way I put it, was I'm just gonna see where this goes. And so at like two o'clock in the morning, um, around a lot of people who didn't understand why I was bawling my eyes out, um, I gave a half-hearted yes to Jesus and my life has never been the same. Um, not because my feelings changed, but because suddenly my feelings were not the most important thing in my life. I was not defined by what I did anymore, but because who he said I was. And when everything in my life could now be anchored in something much more secure than how I felt, I could actually begin to make progress in life. What I mean by that is I wasn't navel-gazing all the time about why I felt terrible or why my life wasn't great. I could see that there was a world around me that I could actually engage in and participate in and that the Lord had called me to even as I was figuring out my feelings. And so I got plugged into my church, started serving there, uh, taught in the college ministry for a while, um, and one Wednesday night, I walked up to the third and a half floor of my church, because our church was a bunch of buildings kind of pieced together in the 80s. Um, and I heard someone telling someone off in a bad British accent 
uh, with a like secondhand fedora and one of those really ratty uh, vests. And I looked across the room, and for the first time in my life, a woman made me go, huh. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't attraction, but it was interest. And I had never been interested in a woman before because I knew women. I grew up with women. I know women. And what I didn't get was why anyone would want to spend a lot of time with them. Because I'd spent 20 years with them and I was done. <laughs> um, but I was intrigued. I was intrigued. And so because I totally missed the middle school thing where you just kind of hover around the edge of someone's friend group and figure out if they like you or not, um, I spent the next two years uh, finding ways to go to lunch where she was going to lunch and then ultimately changed my schedule completely so that every Sunday after church we were going to lunch together. And what began to grow in me was, was something unexpected because I expected sexuality to be self-consuming and a fire that just kind of burned and would not be quenched until I was satisfied. But I found myself wanting to do things for her and to serve her and to see her look more like Jesus. And that was weird for me because I was incredibly selfish and narcissistic and she was, she was growing in me, the Lord was growing in me through her, something that I had never experienced before. And so just as I'm about to ask her out, first woman ever, she decides she's going to India for a year. <laughs> um, because Women. people, people I, need Jesus in India. I hate when they do that, man. Um, and so, Go to India. <laughs> she, she lets me know she's going to India, and I'm like, yeah, let's, let's Skype a couple of times a month, because, you know, that'd be cool. Um, and a couple of times a month turned into five nights a week, and by the time she was getting ready to come back, we had had a lot of very difficult conversations. She knew my background. She had seen me at my worst. She knew when I was still pursuing being gay here in DFW um, and knew what she was signing up for and still said, if... God is big enough to make me look like him. He's big enough to change you. She saw her sin not as different than mine, but exactly the same thing, that if she was going to submit her life to Christ in a way that was radically transformative, she had to believe that God was big enough to keep me faithful to him and ultimately to her. So she told her parents, her father is a West Texas Southern Baptist minister, which was terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> We sat across from the table at uh, Cracker Barrel and had this conversation, and uh, his response his response was, uh, she came home in May from India. His response was, as long as y'all don't get married by August, I think you'll be fine. Um, he officiated our wedding, and when we stood before God and everyone that day, it truly was a corporate commitment, not to the fact that my feelings were any different than they were that very first day I moved to Fort Worth, but to a God who is more than how I felt and who I was trusting to grow in me what I needed to steward this new family well. And he has. Um, my life has not gotten better, better since that day. I still wake up many days very attracted to men. Yes, I love my wife. Yes, we have sex. Yes, it's a great thing. Um, but we struggle, not because of my background necessarily, but because brokenness exists in our world and we have to face that together but the beautiful thing is, is that at no point in this has God stopped being good or has he stopped being sovereign. And in the course of trusting in those two things about him, we've been able to get through some really interesting last four years. Like he said, we've been married four years. Wow. And so um, I'm here to tell you that the gospel does change you, but not always in the way that you expect. And so hopefully we'll talk more about that in a second. Man, praise God. Thank all of you guys.
Um, <laughs> this is epic already. Uh, okay, uh, let's jump into some of these. Uh, please continue to send in questions. So uh, we got, we've got way too many questions and we have time to answer. Uh, and they're all over the place, which I love. And so we're going to do our best to continue to shepherd some of these questions. But uh, yeah, just realize that that's going to be a, a deal. Um, okay, let me start with... Uh, gosh, how do, where do I even start? Okay, somebody sent in a question that is... What do we do? Uh, it just says homosexuality in the church, question mark. So uh, I'm going to, you, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let you just take that wherever you want to go with it. Okay. So like I just said, that's 29 years worth of information. Yep. So where, where do you want to go with this? Uh, I mean, I, I think this is so, I think it's so fascinating how, um, just how powerful the gospel is, right? So how we justify, I think this, what you just said doesn't make sense to the world, oh, absolutely. right? Like what you just said doesn't make sense. And, and so even talk a little bit about, you know, the, the world would say, what's wrong with you guys? Like if you're, if you're gay, if you feel like you're gay, if you're born gay, if you, you know, from a young age identify that, how dare the church or anyone else tell you that's wrong, um, you know, and here we have religion telling you to do this thing. Man, help, help us justify the insanity of, of how the world would see that. Yeah, absolutely. How dare the gospel tell any of us that we're wrong? How dare Jesus look down from on high and say, the life that you're living is not going to be good for you? This cannot be about sexuality. If you narrow the question of my life and the choices that I've made down to the fact that I was attracted to men and still am, um, you can't really have this conversation because it is so far removed from the actual choice that things get very confusing. Because the choice is not, am I going to be gay or not? Is it, am I going to believe that the word of God is authoritative in my life? Mm -hmm. Am I going to believe that no matter how I feel, what God has given us, given us in his word is better than anything than I could experience in this life. And I did not believe that when I came to Jesus. Mm -hmm. I did not believe, I had not experienced that his word was good. But what I did know is that it had transformed someone else and that they were willing to share that with me. Hmm. That they cared enough about me that they were going to share that with me. And I saw it lived out in a way that made me give that half-hearted yes to Jesus. And I began to experience the things that his word said would happen. Hmm. I experienced change at the rate of obedience. And this, it, I don't mean to say that the gospel is transactional, that we do things and God changes us, but that my love for him grew, First John tells us, as I did the things that he wanted me to do because I was acting like his kid. Yeah. I was acting in the way that he had created me to be. And strangely, our feelings follow our decisions, not the other way around. Hmm. We say, want our, say that again. Our feelings follow our decisions. We want our feelings to change, and then we change our behavior, but that's not the way life works. We have to decide what is true first, and then our feelings will follow, and that has been the truth in every area of my life. Yeah. And so if you're struggling with anything, but especially whoever wrote this question, sure. homosexuality in the church, um, look for Jesus first. Yeah. I can't promise you, whatever you do, that your feelings are going to change, no matter what your feelings are today, but I can tell you that he will radically transform your life, and that's what matters. We'll work on the details as we go. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of let's pursue Christ yes. and not just the behavior modification. Ryan, I'd love for you to interact with that, but specifically taking the gospel, which I think when, when I hear your testimony, Sam, and when, I've, and when I've heard other guys who have a similar testimony to that and to see the power of the gospel seep into uh, someone who struggles with homosexuality throughout their life, 
it's the same gospel, right? It's the same gospel, like, that's not my inclination, but my sin inclinations are still just as condemning, just as dangerous. Uh, our culture sees them differently because homosexuality is not just a, it's not a sin, it's an identity, right? It's a, um, but Ryan, take that and, and apply that gospel to other areas, right? Like, like what that would look like for people who struggle with other addictions and, and I mean, in your okay. life or you're walking yeah. with other people's life. Yeah, I feel like I, I wanted, I was tempted to, to ask you, is there any difference would the question be any different of heterosexual lust in Absolutely the church? Not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Same, yeah. So, yeah, then, you know, second half to my own testimony, I, I, it took me, I, I ran away from God by trying to be really bad, but then I later ran away from him by trying to be really good and trying to become, you know, trying to make, start, once I, once I started, you know, being committed to Christ, I wanted to become a, a God's uh, varsity Christian and stand out as I found more and more of a home here at Christ Chapel, and I pursued a calling into ministry. So all these big sins that I was struggling with that were, when I say big sins, I mean the mushrooms, uh, pot, sleeping around, drinking, uh, drinking and driving kind of stuff, you know. There was all these things that God had to scare me out of, hmm. you know. And then eventually I looked like a Christian, but when I got called into ministry, I remember on my first day going into seminary, uh, being behind somebody, I overheard uh, like one of the professors say, well, if you struggle with pornography, you probably shouldn't be at seminary. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you better take care of that problem. Mm -hmm. And that what happened is the moment I heard that, I was like, okay, I'm going to on my own secretly take care of that problem. I grew up with pornography in my house and it's always been the temptation, uh, a temptation, the medication of choice. It was always something that when I wasn't dating someone, it became a bigger temptation, you mm -hmm. know, it would kind of come and go. Well, when I was in seminary, I was single and, um, and I found myself really trying harder than ever to not look at pornography. And what would happen was it would almost like, like a dam build up and then and then it would come crashing over at a, at a moment of weakness and shame and first year and a half of seminary i'm sitting here in class hearing about what jesus did on the cross and my heart is burning i'd go home to you know in fort worth I went to dallas seminary come to fort worth i'd be at starbucks checking out every girl who walked in you know and then finding myself walking by the sexuality aisle you know trying to get you know yeah. fly under the radar and then I would find that like the harder I tried, the more uh, I would fall on my face and this guilt and shame put me into this place of depression. And it was, I mean, I don't, however you want to define addiction, I just know that I was not able to manage it. And I was, I remember sitting in a class and I might be, I hope I'm not going a wrong direction with your question, okay. but um, I remember sitting in the class, we were studying what exactly Jesus, we were studying the atonement, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Again, my heart was burning. This was, this is what I needed to hear. And I go across the street between classes to buy a cup of coffee because at one o'clock I always get tired. And so I'm buying coffee. The guy's not a Christian. I knew this because he, he was like a, I don't know how to describe it, but he, he had all this religious paraphernalia. And I'm wearing the coat and tie that you wear, and it's clearly seminary guy with a witness right? I'm buying my coffee, and on my right were all these porn magazines. And as I, he's making change, I'm going, looking, glancing at the covers. And I remember hearing the question in my head, we were just studying this, what difference does it make that Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago as to whether or not you look at the covers of these magazines? Hmm. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I can fake an answer, but I couldn't answer it in a way that made a difference. And that question haunted me, because that's why the people I'm here, that's why they're here. And I, it's not even making a difference in my personal struggles. Mm -hmm. 
And wrestling with that question absolutely liberated me because what I was doing was I was trying to please God with my, with my performance, and I believed that he wasn't pleased with me because I couldn't beat this struggle. And I praise God for this struggle because I can't beat it. I need Jesus. And the thing is, God's mood toward me doesn't go up and down based on my performance. How strong was my quiet time today? How, you know, how long has it been since you looked? All this stuff. Say that I love, again. You're, God's you're up mood, and down. God's love and affection toward me doesn't go up and down based on my present performance. Say it one more time. Sorry. I just, I need to hear that. God's love for me doesn't, he's not fickle with his love. It doesn't go up and down based on my present performance. Thank you. And I was trying to get God to love me. Like I, I, I believed he loves me, but he didn't like me because he saw what I was doing. And it, it realized that my, his love for me is not based on my performance today. It's based on what Jesus did 2000 years ago. Amen. That's, I'm in him, and it just, it's like I understood the gospel a year and a half into seminary, and I, that gave me the courage to share with my, the group, I was actually leading a group of, spirit, a spiritual formation group. You said we have a lot of questions. We do, yeah, okay, sir, we'll... <laughs> This is why she's the queen. And then I found Jesus. Yep. Nice. I, I love it, and I, I, yeah. I hope, man, if you guys walk out of here, just the power of the gospel, right? And the power of the gospel across, no matter our struggles, what that looks like, and how this behavior modification, this legalism is not what Christ set us free to. Okay, Susan, I got a question for you. Be sure to cut her off if she, uh, yeah. if she goes quickly. I'll be sure. Um, <laughs> no, honestly, this question came in, and it's, uh, I love it. I love the vulnerability of this question. Um, it is a, a, heavy, a heavy question. Uh, someone, someone texted in, as a fellow, <clears throat> I said, as a fellow rape survivor, how do you explain to people the where was God when that happened? I know you want me to have the answer. I'm not really sure that I do. Um, I know that God is good all the time. Mm -hmm. I know that he made my story, so I shouldn't be ashamed to tell it. Mm -hmm. Um but it's hard. That's probably something I still struggle with. Yeah. A question that had come in that I think is almost kind of similar um, is how do you find even joy in trials, mm. right? So even that kind of idea of like going through hard things, can you and how do you? Yeah. Um, well, I only got to tell you five minutes of my story today. So that's because I spent an hour and a half in your office the other day. That's right. To whittle it down. I heard all of it. Um, so... I've been through some really tough stuff. So one of the things that happened is um, I had a daughter who died after three days of being here on earth with us. Mm. And um, we knew that she was going to pass away before she came out of the womb. And so it was a miracle for us that we got to spend any time with her at all. Mm -hmm. um, but I got roughly four months worth of time with her in the womb and time with Jesus because I couldn't get out of bed and um, my spirits were down and I was mad at everybody. And so even if I could have gotten out of bed, I probably wouldn't have. But it was my sweetest time with Jesus. Like any time I was ready to give up, he was right there with me. Um, whether it was 
a friend who stopped by with a verse that I could meditate on. It was an amazing time. Mm. So I think that if I look back at my life and the struggles that I've had, um, I can point out every single time that Jesus was just there and he showed up. And he shows up time and time again when, when my life feels dark. So I love that. did thank I answer you. it? Yeah, thank you, thank you. Ryan, you want to read it? Um, yeah, I would. <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going with this. I just know that for those, both of those questions, they, there's a heavy emotional component mm -hmm. to both of them. And I'm being very broad, I'm, it's a very broad stroke here. Go to the Psalms. Um, the Psalms are, we, God allows us to hear his children cry out with unfiltered emotion. And even say things that are theologically not true because it's, it's the raw expression of the heart. For example, uh, uh, Psalm 13. Imagine taking a theological pen to this. I, I, uh, I'd have to, my fingers don't work when people are watching. Okay. You should get that look How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, will you hide your, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and, and have sorrow in my heart all the day? I mean, if you went through, like, how long will you forget me? Well, God does not forget. You, you, God doesn't hide his face from you. Like, you, that's not true. But this person is, un, he's expressing the unfiltered, raw emotions of his heart to God, and, and it's training us how to be emotionally up and down, experience the agonizing points of life, the, the, the highs, the confusion, uh, what happens when we're just wrecked with guilt, you know? What, the, the life is a roller coaster, and the question, where was God you know, when I was raped? I, I can't answer that with, with personal credibility. I don't think I've experienced anything like that, but I also know what, where was God, when Jesus was on the cross, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, where was God? And you look through the scriptures, you see horrible things happening. And he is God. He is good. And the Psalms go there. Mm -hmm. And it That's gives cool. us a voice when we are just, what do I say? Man, thank you. Samuel, kind of in the this, in this similar theme, and then I'm going to jump to a totally different <laughs> theme here. Um, we've probably got about 10 minutes left. So we'll go kind of shotgun mode here. But uh, I think in, in this kind of idea, someone talked about you, they traveled around a lot and they visited Cambodia and they saw the killing fields uh, in a torture prison where hundreds of thousands of people died horrible, painful deaths. Uh, it, it, it's something that just talking about justifying how can a loving God allow this to happen? And I think, to be honest, I, I believe whether or not we struggle with this question not curr or, or currently or not, uh, I think it is such an important question for us as believers and non-believers. Uh, what, what do we do with that? How can a God allow those bad things to happen. I'd love to kind of hear your response and how you've been able to wrestle and justi justify that. Yeah. Um, in a similar way, it's already been said, um, we look at the evil that has been committed in this world, both personally and worldwide, and from our perspective, question God. When I know the evil inclinations of my heart, that are withheld moment by moment, and he has been a part of my life for so long, that there is so much more evil that I am capable of mm -hmm. than what I have done. And when I look at the excruciating pain of those that I care about the most and the horrific things that happen around the world, I wonder first, why not me? Why, why have I not suffered like that? 
But then secondly, how is it not so much worse than it is? Because when you know your sin, you know you could do so much worse than what's already been done, and the only reason you haven't is because of a God who constrains you. And so I look at the evil that happens in this world, and I don't ask why this has happened, but I ask more, what has God called me to in this world to restrain that evil? Because as the church, it is our job to fight the gates of hell. Hmm. And our mission, because of our limited perspective, is to trust that God does know what he is doing mm -hmm. and let our obedience follow our, his commands, which is to share the gospel. And that is the only way we're going to be able to stop what's currently and what has happened. I Man, hope that's that awesome. helps. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, a couple questions. Uh, I'm going to kind of lump them together. But essentially the idea of uh, any one of you guys, but kind of quickly, uh, what's the, what, um, how do you approach a non-believer, right? So a real practical question of practical situation of either how to approach somebody who wants nothing to do with religion, how do you start that conversation? But I, I think dovetailed into that is someone texted in, how do you minister to people who aren't believers, but they think and feel that their lives are really actually doing fine, that there's not necessarily a felt need there. And in fact, in some ways, their life looks almost more put together than your life as you're struggling with things. Walk us through that of what that might look like. For, for any one of you guys. Feel free, Sam. <laughs> I mean, the second question I got to think about. Yeah, anymore. go for it. Go for it, um, My best friends in high school were some of the best people I knew, and they were as far away from Jesus as you can get. Um, and so the way, the way that I have learned to respond there is um, you've got to make deposits before you can make withdrawals. <laughs> and so you do that by just being friends with people. Like, you can't go into a relationship and saying, what you're doing doesn't line up with the God of the universe and hope that they're going to change. Um, like, learn... We have that. We sell shirts that say that, actually, here in a bit. Um, <laughs> learn how to order coffee for them. Like, learn what they do when no one else is around, what makes their heart sing. All of us are geeks about something, yeah. and so get them in the context where they geek out and be there with them. Appreciate them as the image bearer that they are, and then wait for the opportunity for the Lord to give you to share. Um, and then be faithful to be ready in every season when he gives you that opportunity to share with someone at a restaurant or across the table at a coffee shop um, to be able to give word for the hope that's in you. Yeah, kind of piggyback then that conversation begins. If you feel I'm not qualified to answer these questions, I don't know what to do. Just I want to encourage you that anytime there's a different perspectives, this will apply whether it's a conversation with a non-believer or you get married and your spouse has a different perspective on something you're about to argue about. It is our nature to want to defend, to, you know, to, to, to defend our viewpoint or whatever. And James 1.19, it says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I just want to encourage you, it is okay not to know. It is very powerful, though, to really listen to somebody mm -hmm. in their doubts. And if you find that they make a good point, then, I mean, actually, like, Reason for God by Tim Keller does a good job of this. Like, squeeze the juice out of their doubt. Like, what, what, yeah, how could there only be one God if, when there's all these other things? That, that's a good, that's a, that is a good point. I, I think there's a good answer to that. I'm not sure I know how to answer that, but they, they feel heard. And you, they didn't just change your mind, but you, they actually feel heard. I think it's so frustrating to say something, and you know that other person isn't listening. They're just waiting to give their, their answer. Mm -hmm. And I think the Christians are very, you know, notoriously do that. Yeah. I, I heard this on a podcast once, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's good. listen, and, and if that's all you do, well done. That's good. Okay, a couple more. <clears throat> um, 
this is one. Uh, is it okay to smoke weed? Uh, when I smoke, I think differently and desire to get close to Christ more. Fellowship, and he just comes to mind during all of that. Uh, I've heard uh, a lot of people say the same thing, uh, or like other Christians in South America, who, in South America who use psychedelics to get closer to Christ. Is that bad? Uh, what are your thoughts? Susan, you probably smoked a lot of weed. What do you think? Just one time. <laughs> just one time. Just one time. Uh, it made me throw up my beer, so I think this question is really uh, for Ah, I got you. The, the weed was affa- affecting your alcohol, so you were like, forget that. I get it. Okay, Ryan, give me like a, just give us a 60-second answer on this. Okay, all right. Like a really brief yeah, answer. Yeah, I really, I, I, I relate. I've been, I've been there. Yeah. Uh, if I were to write, I'm not writing a book, but if I were to write a book, this would be a chapter, honestly. I was post-mushrooms, still smoked weed, and I would start connecting with God, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense. Yeah. But uh, 2 Corinthians 11 says Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. And I know that sound, might sound rash, but I really do believe that you're kind of, through, through a form of disobedience, you're opening yourself up to, I define evil as a short, an illegitimate shortcut to good. And, oh, I'm on a quick, lazy way to get to God. No, you don't develop a relationship with God by disobeying him. You, you, you spend time in his word, you know, and, and what happened to me is I had a bunch of good experiences on pot with, with God, and then suddenly I had another bad experience, worse than the one I described on mushrooms. I had a bad experience at a Pink Floyd concert in 1994 on just pot, where it was like demonic, God rescued me again, and mm. I never smoked again because I realized what I was flirting with. Mm. And it changes the way you think. So, it almost, it so, just so you're not rejecting the idea that there's some sort of spiritual thing. Oh, yeah. What I mean, you're saying is, man, you're opening up a door that, that is same, it's deceiving. Time, yes. You think, oh, man, I'm connecting with Christ, and, and your proposition is that is not Christ. I think that's in, honestly, the enemy's tool belt is to give you good experiences sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, um, a couple more. Uh, okay. It's freezing in here. We don't want you to be thinking about the enemy. All right. Is it cold no, in here? It's really cold. I see people, right? It's, you're freezing, right? All right. Cold. Is it cold? It's cold. It's cold. How about you guys stop being wimps, all right? <laughs> okay. Uh, how, do I, how do I respond um, to a... Hey, just calm down, guys, all right? We're almost done. How do I respond to a best friend who, this is, this is interesting, how do I respond to a best friend who says she's getting peace from deep breathing and visiting her therapist, but she continues to struggle with extreme anxiety? I'd love for you to tackle this, Sam. Uh, she's uh, a psychology major. She uses a lot of science to argue her points. I've tried to tell her to pray for peace, right? So her solution is we'll just pray for peace, but instead she doesn't believe in praying. Um, what, uh, what do we do? How do we start that conversation? This is kind of a, Okay, it's a little bit of a science and faith question of like, she's just saying, no, I don't need prayer. I don't need Christ. I'm going to do some breathing, use some exercises. What do we, what do, we do there? Yeah, so um, humans are amazing creatures. Uh, God made us in his image, and we can do incredible things. And if, um, if we try really hard, we can do pretty much anything for a short amount of time. And so it doesn't surprise me that she's getting quite a bit of relief from this. I have crippling social anxiety. I am an extrovert who doesn't like people. And so I get into, <laughs> I get into crowds of people and y'all terrify me. Um, because at the end of the day, I care more about what you think about me than what God does. And so that would be my point, is that she needs to take a breath, but in a different way, and see where her anxiety and her lack of peace comes from a lack of trust in the nature of who God is 
that all fear comes from a distrust of God's love and figure out maybe by not breathing and um, going to her therapist just a little bit, just a little bit, get some distance um, to figure out what that fear is and repent. All sin must be repented of. And then in the context of community, we can work out the disciplines to start working on why that fear is the case. Because there's always good reasons for why we're afraid. We just have to get to them. That's good. Cool. Brian, how do I know I'm saved? I read First John a bunch because that's the point of First John is to give assurance, you know, to test. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's in here and they um, ask that question, which we, we all ask that question, you would say First John is one of the well, best It's a place that if you want to camp out. I honestly sure. don't think, uh, I think people want uh, sometimes a, 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 an overly quick place to assurance. I, I've wrestled with assurance of salvation a sure, lot, me too. especially in the seasons where I'm looking at porn. Yeah. Sure. And I think that's because sometimes God will remove a sense of assurance to, to rattle you. And that's like 2 Peter 1 says it. Like if you're not growing, if you're not pursuing him, he will, you, we will become spiritually blind and forget that we've been cleansed from our past sins. I think the truth is, though, if the, the end of the day, our salvation is determined by who we are trusting in. If you feel like you're good enough to go to heaven on your own, I don't care how much assurance you have, you're not going to heaven. It's mm -hmm. humility, and I think a lack of assurance can be the thing that prompts us to trust. I can't trust in myself. You'll never get assurance by looking at yourself. You only get assurance by looking at Christ. Mm, that's good. And, and camping can, out on what he's done for you. Can you lose your salvation, Samuel? Can you lose it? Like he said, like, it feels like the assurance is removed. Can, can God take his salvation away if you were truly saved? No. And, but you wander into sin, can he take it? No. We're never saved. But do not take the warnings of Scripture lightly. It is very easy to deceive yourself that because of a feeling you have had that you are Christ's. Be very careful at, at what your life lines up in Scripture. And if you are finding that what you are doing does not line up with what it means to be a child of God, wrestle with that question. Like he said, don't rush to assurance so quickly that you end up actually missing Jesus. Hmm, that's great. Let, let's end with this. I, want the, uh, I would love for you guys, maybe 60 seconds, give us a final thought uh, for the night. Ryan, I'm going to start with you. Um, just what you would want people leaving with, something that you feel impressed upon to say, man, I, I want you leaving with this. The faithfulness of God uh, is what, you know, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, I, I think about just, we, we just need to figure out our lives and get it right. And so many areas, so I'm thinking of your, where you are right now. You, you're customizing your life. And one of those things is, will my relationship with God be part of what I get right? And you will not get it right. Jesus gets it right. He is faithful. And it trust, you know, just learning to... Um, Fall in love with him. I fall in love with, with, with Jesus when I discover his unconditional grace and love. And um, yeah, I, I, there's two verses. Isaiah 26, 3 comes to mind. It's from the last question. Honestly, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you hmm. because he trusts in you. And then, um, yeah, it is, he is a faithful God who... Uh, that's all. I, I, yeah, I, I, honestly, I have more to say I than I have time that's to say. Good. But. That's good. Susan, give us a final, final thought. You talked about how you came from a background where it was really strict. And when my dad um, got saved in the Nazarene church, it was really strict. Like we couldn't swim in pools with boys. No, I think it was called mixed bathing. Um, we weren't allowed to wear shorts or go see movies. So all those cool movies from the 80s that your parents talk about, I never saw them. Mm. Um, so I think if you're in the audience and you are 
in a situation where some of this doesn't make sense and you don't care because um, it all sounds too strict or it's going to take your fun away, mm. that um, it's okay to have a crisis of religion, but a crisis of faith is something completely different. Mm. So have the crisis of religion all you want, but God is here. He loves you. Um, he wants you to believe in him. And he's worth it. He's worth it, for sure. That's so good. Thank you, Susan. That's so good. Final thought for tonight. Final thought. Um, we'll start where, well, we'll end where we began. Um, your feelings are incredibly powerful, but they are not who you are. Everything that you imbibe from your newsfeed, um, from your friends, from the world outside of Scripture says, do what you feel and your life will be better. Mm. And I know you know from experience that that is not true. The most boring decade of my life was the one trapped in pornography because when I went home, I knew what that night was going to be. I was going to go home. I was going to log in six hours of porn, go to bed at 2 a.m., wake up and try and make life happen the next day. Mm. When I gave my life to Jesus, the predictability of sin was gone and I wake up every day, and when I use the word anxious, I don't mean racked with fear, but anticipating what he's going to have for me that day, because the God of the universe has ordained my steps ahead of time, and I am so excited about what I can participate in that I don't deserve to participate in, and that that day can actually be more than just how I feel, and it's been really exciting. And so a half-hearted yes sometimes is all you need. Praise God, yeah. man. I'm so grateful for you guys. Thank you all. Yeah.